Amen. I want to start out this morning by telling you about a famous heretic in the early church, someone who gathered a, a huge following and led many of God's people astray from biblical Christianity. His name was Marcion. He was born around 85 AD. So, I mean, very early, while the New Testament was, was really still reaching its final form, and he lived a long life, uh, as heretics do, uh, <laughs> dying around 160. You notice the saints, they often don't make it that long, right? <laughs> Marcion's heresy consisted of, of really two major departures from Christ and the apostles. The first is that he taught that the creator God of the Old Testament was a false and evil deity who stood in stark contrast from the loving father of Jesus Christ. And therefore, secondly, he taught that the entire Old Testament was to be rejected uh, as Christian scripture. In fact, Marcion eventually created his own canon of scripture with his own uh, amended copy of the Gospel of Luke. And then he chose uh, 10 of Paul's letters and he edited out any references to Judaism or the Old Testament. Now, not surprisingly, Marcion was denounced as a heretic by several of the great church fathers, by Justin Martyr, by Irenaeus and Tertullian, and he was eventually excommunicated from the Church of Rome in 144 AD. In other words, he was kicked out. And how about Marcion's influence in our time? Do you think this idea of an Old Testament tyrant God and a New Testament God of love still has some juice today? Indeed, like most heresies, it has a basic appeal and therefore it has tr never truly gone away. Likewise, we might ask, how has the downplaying or at times the wholesale rejection of Jesus's Jewish roots impacted the history of this world? How has this erroneous thread of anti-Semitism in the church contributed to the whitewashing and the westernizing of Jesus in art? Or even to the horrors of the Holocaust? All of this must be repented of and roundly rejected as an alien intrusion to the Christian tradition. Just as the early church rejected the yeast of Marcion. Because guys, any serious reading of the Bible reveals that it's impossible to separate the New Testament from the Old. It's impossible to sever Jesus of Nazareth from his Jewish roots. We will soon come to see as we read the Bible that it is a two testament witness of the one creator God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, and yet, if we're not careful, even modern believers can be tempted, sometimes unconsciously so, down the path of this ancient heresy. But guys, if Marcion were correct, what would be the point of having a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah? If Marcion were correct, what could Nehemiah teach us about Christian worship and how we inhabit worship today? This morning, I want us to see how a non-Marcionite, in other words, an orthodox 
reading of Nehemiah 12 can unlock important truths about Christian worship, truths that would be impossible to grasp without a Two Testament view of Scripture. So there's so much we could say about this passage, but for today I want us to notice uh, what it has to teach us about the form of worship, about the role of music, and about the essence of worship. So we'll take some time on each of these topics. So turn, if you would, to Nehemiah 12. And I forgot to get the page number, so maybe somebody could call that out for everyone. 408. All right, turn to 408, Nehemiah 12. And first we're going to learn what it has to say about the form of biblical worship, the way that it looked, the elements that it contained. In Nehemiah 12, 27, the Jewish people gather for, quote, a dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. Now, to dedicate something means that we place the works of our hands, the fruit of our labor, and all our accomplishments in their proper place under the sovereign lordship of God. Just as the Israelites dedicated the first tenth of their crops and their flocks, just as the Old Testament hero Hannah dedicated her long-awaited son back to the Lord, to dedicate is to freely give back to God that which was his all along. So at long last, the epic task of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem was complete, and a mark this dedication with appropriate pomp and circumstance, it says that, quote, they sought the Levites, so that's the priestly tribe, right, in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, not those kind of lyres, although they were probably there too. In fact, in verse 31, we learn that Nehemiah brought the leaders of Judah onto the wall, as Sarah just pointed out. So it must have been a pretty sturdy structure, right? And they appointed two great choirs to give thanks. Now, can you picture this victorious image of all these Jewish leaders standing on the wall that they had just built? And you picture the two choirs. And from there the people began a kind of like Holy Spirit parade around the city of Jerusalem. One choir was led by Ezra the scribe, verse 36, and Nehemiah himself followed behind the other, verse 38. And the joy of the people was palpable. Verse 43 says, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. At my house, we can hear the football stadium from far away. It was like that. It was a picture of pure, rambunctious joy to the Lord. And I can imagine Nehemiah being like, Take that, Sam Ballad and Tobiah. (laughs) And from this picture, there's much that we could say about the formal aspects of worship. What it looked like, the elements that it contained, right? It included priests and singers and instruments and choirs and liturgy and movement and involved a dedicated house of worship in the form of the temple. Verse 40, it involved the whole community. Women and children also rejoice. In fact, notice that the children were treated as covenant insiders who are full participants in the worship of the community of God. 
And as Sarah mentioned in her children's sermon, this is not the only place where communal worship is described in the book of Nehemiah. Can you flip back to chapter 8 for just a second? Because from this chapter, we could add other things to the list, like a wooden platform for the public reading of Scripture in Nehemiah 8.4, along with ordained clergy who were prepared to give the sense so that people understood the reading, verse 8. We could add the lifting up of their hands and the bowing of their heads, verse 6. We could add the public confession of sin and the public celebration of the Feast of Booths, which was a part of their annual liturgical calendar. So taking chapter 8 alongside of chapter 12, it, it just all seems so glorious, doesn't it? So spiritual and yet so earthy. So so holy and yet so communal and inclusive, so spontaneous and yet so liturgical. Sometimes people will ask me, why do Anglicans have like priests and robes and liturgy? Why do you read the scriptures aloud from wooden platforms and publicly confess your sins? Why do you include children as full participants? Why is there an annual calendar of feasts? I mean, is that something that you like borrowed from paganism or something? And what I want to reply in my fleshly impatience is, have you ever read the first two thirds of your Bible? <laughs> How do you think these kinds of practices sprung up amongst the earliest Christians? And what a far cry all these things are from Marcion, who denied the intrinsic goodness of matter and rejected any material thing as being a part of God's plan. Indeed, he went so far as to teach that Jesus only appeared to take on flesh, that he did not actually have a physical body. Are we sure that we're not more tapped into this current of Marcion than to biblical Christianity? thinking that matter is bad and only spirit is good? Or at the very least, treating anything physical as belonging to the category of dead works and meaningless superstition? It doesn't look like dead works to me in Nehemiah 12. Now, to be clear, the only thing required in Christian worship is that we worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus says in John 4, 23. There's no ongoing commandment that requires liturgy or, or wall crosses or a Christian calendar. Furthermore, I found that a living room Bible study can be just as glorious as worshiping in a Gothic cathedral, right? Because a living room Bible study expresses the imminence of God, that Emmanuel, God with us, meets us in our everyday spaces, while worshiping at, at a place like a, like a Gothic cathedral communicates the transcendence of God, right? That God is glorious beyond all human reckoning. Both are true. But as Southern American Christians living in a largely Baptistic context, are we not much more likely to look with skepticism upon the physicality of the sacraments, or upon the ordained clergy, or set times of prayer, or the use of sacred space, all of which, by the way, were part of apostolic Christianity in the New Testament. It's ironic, is it not, 
that we all shout our war cries and do our symbolic hand chop at the football stadium. Oh, all done for the devotion of a silly freaking football team. And yet we resist the chanting of the liturgy and the crossing of ourselves out of devotion to a holy God. Perhaps modern people haven't actually become less religious. Perhaps we've just transferred our religion to new places and to new gods. Now, I want to change tracks a bit and take a few minutes to reflect on the role of music in worship. Do you know that there are some Protestant denominations that actually forbid the use of musical instruments? They follow what's known as the regulative principle. Turn to your neighbor and say, the regulative principle. (laughs) Which states that we're not allowed to do anything in worship unless it's expressly commanded or modeled in the New Testament. So this this sounds reasonable at first glance, and I certainly believe that we should forbid anything that goes against the Bible. But the regulative principle rests upon a wrong view of Scripture. In some case, forbidding instruments or um, the writing of new songs or crossing oneself as if the New Testament is intended to provide an exhaustive manual for Christian worship. But the bigger problem with the regulative principle is that in an almost Marcionite way, it discounts the role of the whole, New Test- uh, the whole Old Testament excuse me, in the shaping of the Christian imagination and worship. Indeed, I sometimes wonder if these radical stances that some Protestants have taken have less to do with respect for the Bible, less to do with sola scriptura, and more to do with an unconscious bias against the physical world and a severing of Christianity from its Jewish roots. In our eagerness to reject the excesses of the medieval Catholic Church, we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. Take Psalm 150 as a biblical example of the role of music in worship. Verse 3 and following says, Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dancing. Oh dang, this is starting to get charismatic here. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We know that this kind of worship was pleasing to God in the Old Covenant. And while we rejoice that we've entered the New Covenant by the blood of Jesus and by the gift of the Holy Spirit, we also recognize that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if instruments and enthusiasm and shouting and clapping and raising our hands and even loud clashing cymbals were pleasing to Him then... What is one good reason we have to suppose that they're not pleasing to him now? Right? I mean, the cross of Christ, of course, has fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system. No more Levitical sacrifices required. But has it abolished musical instruments? I don't think so. On the contrary, it is for good and biblical reasons that music has played an indispensable role in the worship of God's people down through history, just as it does here in Nehemiah 12. 
We've already mentioned the singing with cymbals, harps, and lyres in verse 27. And in verse 36, it adds that these were, quote, the musical instruments of David, the man of God. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, this list of instruments sounds a lot more like a worship band with guitar and drums than a pipe organ. Not, not that I actually have anything against a pipe organ. In fact, I rather like it. But sometimes traditional church people speak as if the organ is sacred and the guitar is secular. And I think it would behoove us that to, rem to remember that at one time, the church considered the pipe organ a new and innovative thing. All right, get, on, get down from my soapbox as a guitar player. <laughs> Continuing on, we've also noted the two choirs that they formed for the occasion, much like we have a children's choir rehearsing today as part of our Christmas feast, our Christmas celebration. But um, what I didn't share earlier was the significance of the singers who, according to verse 29, had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. Now, what we might not realize is that Jerusalem was an underpopulated, dangerous, and therefore somewhat undesirable place to live at this time. In fact, chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 11, records that they had to cast lots to get people to agree to move back there. However, it's noteworthy that the singers didn't have the option to stay put. Like the Levites and the governing leaders, they were required to live close to the temple, to be at hand for significant times of communal worship, just as in the days of King David. So while being a musician was a role of honor at that time, at that time it also required personal sacrifice. And this is not unlike the way that it works in churches still today. Who were the first people to show up at church this morning? The singers! Right? Warming up their voices, the musicians tuning their instruments and getting ready for practice. I just want to take a moment to honor them properly, not only for their talent, but also for their sacrifice. Could we have a hand for the musicians and singers in this church? And, and could we ex especially give a thank offering to the Lord for Kelsey and her leadership of the music? know if you've realized this or not, but we are a church with a super abundance of musical talent. I mean, we basically have like the equivalent equivalence of like three worship bands. We have a congregation full of people who are good singers, and we even have a bunch of people who study music at the university who jump in from time to time. And what a blessing they all are to the rest of us. Amen? We, may we learn to honor them like they were honored in Nehemiah's day. For the ancient Israelites, both of these additions to their communal worship, the heavy emphasis on trained singers, as well as the instruments that were used, came about, quote, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. Verse 45. For long ago, Nehemiah continues, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In other words... Just as the Anglican Church looks back to two different historical moments to inform our doctrine and worship, to the early church and to the Reformation, right? 
So likewise, the post-exilic Israelites drew upon two crucial time periods to shape their understanding of worship, right? Their, their founding as a nation under Moses and this time of liturgical reform under King David. And they didn't view the musical flourishes of King David as a rejection of Moses, but rather like an acorn becomes an oak tree. They saw it as part of the ongoing development of faithful biblical worship. All right, so we've talked about the form of worship and we've talked about the role of music. Now, finally, let's see what we can learn about the essence of worship from this chapter. All right, because in about a week and a half, Americans will gather around tables with their closest friends and family and their favorite seasonal foods. I'm talking about some turkey, some mashed potatoes, gravy, dressing, pumpkin pie, for the purpose of overeating and watching football. <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm being mean to football today. Go Packers. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> I mean for the purpose of giving thanks, amen? And actually, I think Thanksgiving is a great holiday. The older that I get, the more it kind of moves up my favorite holidays list. Because for Christians in particular, it's appropriate to pause and give thanks to God. Give thanks to God for who He is, for the face of God. Give thanks to God for what He's done, for the hand of God in our life. Amen? Likewise, one might contend that the essence of biblical worship can be summarized by this call to return to regular thanksgiving. That was their stated purpose for forming the two choirs in verse 31. And that's exactly what, the, what we see them doing here in verse 40. Nehemiah records, So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. They gave thanks in the house of God. And two and a half millennia later, that's exactly why we're gathered here this morning. In fact, the word Eucharist, which the Apostle Paul and the earliest Christians used as a synonym for a holy communion, actually comes from a Greek word, Eucharistio, which literally means to give thanks. That's what it means. So whenever we gather around the Lord's table, we give thanks afresh, Eucharistio, for our redemption from sin through the blood of Jesus. Amen? And according to the Apostle Paul, it's actually more than just symbolism. He says that the cup of blessing which we bless and the bread that we break is a participation in the body and the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 in fact, listen to this account from Justin Martyr, who was born around 100 AD. He was roughly contemporary with Marcion. It's not scripture, um, but it gives a snapshot of what worship looked like for these early Christians. He writes, On the day which is called the Sun's Day, there is an assembly of all who live in the towns or in the country, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as much as time permits. When the reader has finished, the presider gives a discourse, admonishing us and exhorting us to imitate these excellent examples. Then we all rise together and offer prayers, and on the conclusion of our prayer, bread is brought, and wine, and water. Sound familiar? <laughs> of course, we do these things every Sunday. He continues, when the presider has finished the prayers and the thanksgiving, all the people give their assent to him with an amen, which is a Hebrew word, he says, signifying 
so be it. Now notice, he's already among people that he has to explain this Hebrew word, but he's owning their Jewish roots. Justin Martyr concludes, this food is called Eucharist with us. We do not receive these gifts as ordinary food or ordinary drink, but as Jesus Christ, our Savior, who was made flesh through the word of God, in the same way, the food over which thanksgiving has been offered through the word and prayer, which we have from him, the food by which our blood and flesh are nourished through its transformation, is, we are taught, the flesh and blood of Jesus, who was made flesh. Now, I'm not trying to advocate for a specific doctrine of Holy Communion. In fact, that wasn't even a matter of debate in the church till much later. But can we just appreciate the reverence and the incarnational theology of these early Christians? This is our heritage, guys. Our heritage is not Marcion. This is something he never would have accepted. He preferred spirituality to sacraments, right? He preferred neo-pagan philosophy to Old Testament symbolism. And he preferred a decarnate Christ to the word made flesh. And how about us? Are we more like the followers of Marcion than the Jews of Nehemiah's day or the Christians of Justin's day? So today we've looked at the form of worship in Nehemiah 12, as well as the role of music, the centrality of thanksgiving, and, uh, and we've probably added some new words to our theological vocabulary along the way. Marcionism, an ancient heresy that rejected the Old Testament God and the goodness of creation. The regulative principle, a misuse of scripture that rejects any aspects of worship that aren't directly commanded or modeled in the New Testament, such as instruments and crossing oneself and writing of new worship songs, etc. Eucharistio, the Greek verb to give thanks, adopted by the earliest Christians as a title for the Lord's Supper and expressing the essence of Christians' worship. This is a strange sermon, guys. This is a strange sermon, but we don't often talk about these things, right? We don't often talk about the form of worship and where we get the heritage that we walk in. And I conclude with this. Christian worship is an offering of our whole selves to God as a living sacrifice. In view of the mercy that God has shown us by giving his son to die in our place for the sins of the world. When we come forward to receive Holy Communion, we not only receive the gifts that God has offered us, but in gratitude, we offer ourselves back to him. That's what worship is about. In the words of Jesus, we render to God the things that are God's. We are the ones who bear his image and likeness. I don't know about these ancient Roman coins. We are the work of his hands. We are his inscription. And so let us dedicate ourselves afresh to God this day, freely offering back to our good creator that which was always his in the first place. Amen.